If you would remain standing, I'd love to read our passage of scripture this morning uh, to us. It's from Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites, who began to oppress them that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites east of the Jordan River in the land of the Amorites, that is in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the west side of the Jordan and attacked Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. The Israelites were in great distress. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Good to see all of you. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting us for the first time or if you're watching online, we're so glad you're joining us today. Um, My name is Nick Schreiber. I'm the care pastor here at New City. Um, I'm always excited to be able to preach God's Word, but also very humbled to preach God's Word as well. Uh, This morning, we're going to be jumping back into our sermon series through the book of Judges that we've called In Those Days. Uh, We're going to be in... Judges 10 through 12 this morning primarily, and so you can start making your way there, turning there, uh, clicking your, your, your devices to get there. The passage today kind of marks the middle. We're in the middle of the book of Judges, and our judge in focus is a man named Jephthah this morning, but we'll, we'll get to him in just, just a little bit. But here, here we go again. Even though we're in the the middle of the book, uh, you may have noticed from our reading that it seems like we're in the exact same place. God's people are doing evil, they're turning to idols, God is angry, God punishes, and we see them making again the same mistakes. They're they're jumping back on, on the Ferris wheel. And that's a giant theme. That's a giant pattern in the entire book of Judges. You might remember the Judges cycle is what we call it. The people rebel, God's angry. He he sends enemies to punish, to discipline them. The people cry out to him for help in the midst of that. And he saves them by raising up a judge. There's a season of peace. And then they go and do it all over again. Um, And... What, what is God showing us through this, this cycle, through this book, as we see this over and over again? Well, he's shown us many things, but primarily he's shown us, oh, God, this, this is not fun. We need you. We need somebody greater. We need a greater judge, a greater rescuer to save us. We need somebody, if this is the pattern of our hearts to just keep doing this over and over again, we need somebody that can come and rescue us, give us life, and change us from the inside out. And so this book, it points us, our eyes forward to Jesus, to the one that will come. But, but note this, just as there's a very clear cycle happening in Judges, it's, it's not just a cycle, it's also a spiral that's happening. The Israelites are spiraling further and further downward away from God. One commentator says this, he says, we are back where we began, but we are now at a considerably lower 
level. So now as we sit here in the middle of the book, and as the story progresses further, the story is growing darker and darker. If you look at verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Asherah, but now, note, it's not just Baal and Asherah. Now there's seven groupings of idols that, that is made reference here. And if you know where these lands, if you know where they lie on a map, each reference a different directional area, emphasizing that idolatry is pouring in from every direction. Or in other words, that idolatry is being taken in from every direction. The nations that they were supposed to drive out of the land so that they wouldn't worship their gods or behave like them, they're, they're, they're actually clinging to them. They're still being subdued by them. So the questions as we think about verses like this one and the passage we're going to look at today is, why do you think they keep moving towards idols? What is so appealing about, about them to, to the people? What, what is in us that draws us towards idolatry? And I think we can probably answer some of those questions and be like, well, Maybe I, we, like to, we like to worship those things that we can see and touch and control. And idols, they're, they're shiny. And, and, and maybe it's because we, we like to be like everyone else and, and they're easy. They didn't need to be explained in the culture because everyone's doing it. And idols, they, they tend to give us that, the, the good feelings of, of, of spirituality, although counterfeit. And idolatry has grave consequences. Idols, idols leave you empty and longing for more. And, and because it doesn't satisfy, we keep striving into it. And it enslaves us. And you look up and you're being enslaved by that thing. And you'd think that we'd awaken to our senses and when it, that when it doesn't satisfy, that, that we would turn away to something more real. But actually, sadly, more often than not, we give more to it. And so when that relationship that we thought was the thing ends, we, we go look for another relationship. Or if that money, that amount of money doesn't satisfy, I need, I'll go and look for more. Or if that house doesn't quench my heart's desire, I'll buy or make a bigger one. And there's a foolishness to idolatry. And the scriptures try to help us feel the weight of that foolishness. Psalm 115 is a, is a great example of this. There's this psalm that the nations around Israel, they're, they're mocking Israel because, because their God is invisible. And their God's not like the other, the other gods. And, and yet the psalmist, he kind of calls them on their foolishness and he says this. He says, our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. Their idols are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. And those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. And we're prone to look for substitutes. And foolishly, we make things that we've shaped by our own hands or we've achieved by our own power or effort to be our gods. And they have no life in them. They can't speak or act or feel. They can't save us. And they will eventually rot or rust or be left behind or go away. And so we exchange God, the worship of the true God, for the things that he's created. Or we exchange the truth of God, as Romans 1 says, for a lie. And what are the ramifications? 
the ramifications of idolatry is that we become like what we worship. One author wrote this. He says, if you worship a dead block of wood or stone, you'll become like what you worship. You'll become dead and lifeless. If you worship the living God, you will become like him with all his vibrancy, relationships, and character. Idols change those who worship them. Over time, you become like that which you worship. So just as the worship of God and knowing and abiding in Him will and is rooted in what spiritually forms you, it, it's what, what brings you spiritual formation. Living for false gods is the root of spiritual uh, disformation, spiritual perversion, and it moves you away from God. And so you start down a path and you start veering ever so slightly away from the true God. And over time, what happens? You're in a place far away, distant from God, distant from truth, and you get to a place, and the people of Israel are in a place where they abandoned and they no longer served him at all. What a sobering statement that is. They abandoned and served him no longer. Listen, anything that takes the place of God in your hearts is an idol. And I know that you know this, but idolatry is not just something back here in the time of Judges, but it's, it's, it's here, it's, it's, in, it's rooted in here. John Calvin rightly and famously wrote that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, meaning it perpetually is cranking out new idols, money, home, my appearance, my kids, grades, popularity, success, technology, football, food, all these things. And, and some of them are good things, but they, become, they can become idols. And we have to be on the ready with God's help to name them, confess them, and uproot them. There are grave consequences to idolatry. And the further you chase after or embrace false gods, the more they'll lead you away from God to the point where you, your worship, your life, your actions reveal that you no longer know the character of God. And I believe this is where the Israelites are at. This is the warning to us all. And this is our bottom line this morning, that the more we live for false gods, the less we'll know the true one. The more we live for false gods, the less we'll know the true one. And I'll come back to this later, but there's nothing greater than knowing God. But without further further ado, here's the story. So here's the story of Jephthah. Because of their abandonment and idolatry, the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over, or he gave them up to the Philistines and the Ammonites. And, and although that's raw and that's really hard, you see here a love that will let us go. You see here a love that disciplines. You see here a love that, that is that it acts in order to restore or to rescue. And the Israelites, in their great distress, they cry out to God for, for help. And the Lord's initial response in verse 13 is this. He says, I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. chosen. Let them rescue you. And there's a part of me that, that's like, right on. Way to go. Yes, God's not obligated to save them. They broke the covenant. They, they sinned against him. But then I start to linger on the weight of that phrase. I will not rescue you anymore. Could you imagine the reality of that phrase? If he doesn't save, we're all done for. 
But the Israelites in verse 15 and 16, they come back to the Lord and they plead again. They say, we have sinned. Punish us as you see fit, but only rescue us, please, today from our enemies. And they put aside their foreign gods and they served the Lord and the Lord was grieved by their mercy. And it's here that we see a truer repentance. Initially, we see them cry out for help without any evidence of change. They're sorry for the consequences, but they're not sorry about the the relationship being broken. But you see here their repentance, them putting aside their idols and, and them, them, them choosing God, even not even necessarily dependent on the outcome. Even if you still punish us, we serve you. And the Lord was grieved by their misery. And in his compassion and grace, he relents. He, he, he changes his mind. He begins his journey to save them. Do you know that the Lord, he's gracious. The Lord is compassionate. You're never too far away for God to draw near. There's never too much sin that would disqualify you from his love or, or from, from, from forgiveness if we turn to God. The Lord is gracious and the Lord is forgiving. And Jephthah would have been blessed to remember that. And I just say, make a little note there in your mind. But now, the story, enter Jephthah. Verse, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11 Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said. You are a son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. What What a story. What a... What a sad yet intriguing story. I mean, this is the stuff that many, many a popular story, movie, book is made of. I mean, I can imagine Chris Hemsworth as Jephthah. He's a great warrior, but he's the son of a prostitute and he's hated by his stepbrothers and and so he's rejected. He's an outcast. He flees 80 miles north to be away from them. And, and, as, and he soon, there he has a band of his merry men. Actually, what's the verse say? It says, he says, he's actually, it's a group of worthless rebels following him. And Tim Keller describes him as the surprising, not so surprising rescuer. Surprising in the sense that I don't think his brothers, I don't think anybody in Israel, I don't even think he himself would have ever expected for him to be the rescuer. They didn't care about him. They washed their hands of him, be done with him. Who's Jephthah? But as is the pattern, and as is not so surprising by this time in our study of judges, God tends to use those we would least expect. And well, as the story goes, the Ammonites begin their war against Israel, and the Israelites don't have a leader. So the elders of the land, they send for Jephthah and they say, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. And, and Jephthah's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't you the ones who hated me? Why, why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? You're only here because you need something. And so the leaders raise the ante and they say, well, if you, if you lead us, we will make you the ruler. If you fight for us, we'll follow you. Does that, does that sound familiar Does that whole exchange sound like we've heard it before? Yeah, yeah, it's it's mirroring how the Israelites have been talking to God. This is exactly how they treated him. It's only when you need something that will come to you. It's it's very transactional and circumstantial. It's 
And sadly, we at times talk to God like this too. God, if you would just help me one more time. God, if you would, if you would help me get a good grade on this test, then I'll really, really, really follow you. If you would save me, rescue me one more time, then I will choose you. And God's like, and Jephthah's like, do you want me? Or do you just want what I can give you? And in this dialogue with the elders, we start to see that not only is Jephthah a great warrior, as is described, but we also see that he's a, um, he's a gifted diplomat, diplomat. He's good with words. There's definitely a certain awareness and a knowledge and an acumen that that's about him. He gets, and it gets revealed in the dialogue because as you go through the story, there's four different occasions that you see Jephthah use his, his diplomatic giftings to kind of go about trying to figure out how to, how to lead. And in this case with the elders, we see the dialogue helps to clarify their position. Yes, we will follow you if you fight for us. And then as a leader, the first action that Jephthah takes with the king of Amnon is, is a diplomatic exchange. He explores first this option of, you know what? Let's not go to war. Let's try not to go to war. And let's try to bring peace. And, let's, and so he sends a message. And they have this whole big thing in chapter 11 about, about exchanging. Like, why are you fighting us? Oh yeah, this is why. And now, Sadly, the diplomacy doesn't work, and the war must be fought. But you see that skill in Jephthah, and you see him opening his mouth, and that him opening his mouth will come into play in a little bit too. But this brings us to what I think are the most crucial three verses in the story. Judges chapter 11, verse 29 says, At that time the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he led an army against the Ammonites. And so you see here this amazing verse, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. It follows the same patterns we see in the previous Judges. This is the sign that, that yes, Jephthah is the Lord's rescuer. If the Lord, by, his, by the Lord's help, the Lord will help him to go and gather and to lead this army. This is good. But then you get to the very next two verses, verses 30 and 31, and you see this. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, at this point, uh, for the reader, for us, if you had never heard this story before, if this was unfamiliar to you, where does your heart go when you see these two verses? Where do you start, where do you start thinking about? I'd guess that even to those who are unfamiliar, we'd feel this tinge of, I don't think this fits. I don't think this is good. This feels odd. Why are you doing this? And this is even before we see the outcome. But we feel like this is now going to be the key storyline, and yes, it is. And, and, and what, what is Jephthah thinking will return, will come out when he returns home? I mean, is he expecting his, his little goat that comes sauntering out? Is it this pet dog he doesn't like? And actually, the nuance in the Hebrew shows that he spoke it understanding that it would be a human person. This is definitely the wrong move. And I love what, what one commentator writes. He says, the tragedy is that Jephthah had no need to make the vow. God was already with him. 
The Spirit of the Lord was already upon him. Now, we'll, we'll talk about his reasons and motivations in just a minute, but, but suffice it to say that there's a wrong understanding of God that leads to wrong behavior, that leads to devastating consequences. And, and, and this vow, what Jephthah gets to be known for, is the focus, really, of the entire story. It's what it all was building towards. Because even the next two verses that capture this, this victory that the Israelites have over, an, over the Ammonites, it's so quick it's, it's kind of rushed over, and it makes you feel like, all right, let's get back to the real point of the story here. And it real, reveals once again the Lord's intention here is to show us something greater and deeper. It's not about their victory. It's actually a story for us to learn a spiritual lesson flowing from this great mishap, this great flaw by Jephthah. But before we go, though, let me finish telling the story. That which we feared comes true. When Jephthah returns home, his adolescent daughter, his only child, comes out to greet him, and she's so excited to see him, and he instantly is heartbroken, devastated because of his vow. Now, let me be clear. God does not condone. He does not require child or human sacrifice. This is not God's will. In fact, God hates it. And the scriptures make this so clear. Deuteronomy chapter 12, 31 says, you must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. Child sacrifice was a practice of other nations. In fact, it was a practice of the Ammonites and it was, a detestable, and it was detestable to the Lord. And the Lord calls them to live set apart from the nations. I mean, that's what he's been doing all along. Be holy. And yet the giant flaw here is that Jephthah treats God like he's one of the Ammonite gods. He and they, as a people, had lived so far from a God for so long, they didn't know what he was like anymore. And so they treated him as they saw the culture treat him. And God did not require this vow. And let's be clear, clear the Lord did not give him victory because of his vow or because he wanted a child's sacrifice. No, the Lord uses this flawed man because he had decided to do so, but also leaves him to the consequences of his choices. And one of the most subtle of verses about one of the most grievous of realities is verse 39, where it says, when she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made, indicating that he sacrifices her. And it was a terrible vow. Tim Keller says that this is perhaps the worst story in a terrible portion of Israel's history. And so the question before us is why? Why does he do it? Why does he keep it? And I'll offer three reasons. First, there was a lack of trust in God. He didn't fully trust God's, that God's presence, that God's favor were enough. He needed to offer something he felt like he needed to offer something to, or bring something to the table or he didn't trust that God's presence and favor would remain. And I think there's some insecurities about himself and there's some doubts about God here where he might think, I am an outcast. I am a reject. I'll, I'll be find, found out. Or, or God, he's gonna leave me or he doesn't love me. He's only using me if, so long as I do something for him. And so I make this vow. 
But we need to remember that God doesn't operate towards us in the same way we so often operate towards Him. Everything in the culture, everything in the religions of the world are telling me, telling you and I, that I must perform. And we feel like we need to offer, perform something to make sure we stay on God's good side or to make sure that we can secure His favor. I'll just do these three things and then I'll know, or then you'll know, God, that I really do love you. But His lack of trust, I think, is is one of the reasons why. But His lack of trust flows from the second reason. He no longer knew the character of His own God. He knew the history of God's people, but He didn't know the, the heart of their God. And when you don't know that our God is different, when you don't know the amazing beauty of the character of our God, that he's loving, that he's good, that he's gracious, you treat him in the way the world treats him, or you treat him in the way that your sinful heart, my sinful heart, is prone to treat him. And so we think God needs to be bribed. Hey, let's, I'll make you a deal. Or you think, I need to pay God back. This really isn't free. It's, it's, there's really more here, isn't there? And nothing, nothing good is, is this good. And in all this, through all this, we think that God can be controlled. And what a small and unattractive God this would be. But sadly, we're prone here as well. God, I'll, I'll be really good. I'll, I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll go to church. I'll show you I'm good, especially after I've sinned against you. I'll I'll show you and I'll be good for three years. I'll I'll, I'll be good for a few days here. I'll be pure. I'll be right. God, in order to garner your favor for this test or this promotion or this sermon, God, I I will dedicate this whole day to you. I'll just think about you all the time. Sometimes we use fasting. Sometimes we use tithing. Sometimes we use abstinence. In the same way, I'll perform for God to earn his favor. And what is, what is this? This is works-based religion. And this is, this is not who our God is. And yet, the sadness is that they had forgotten. They didn't know the character of their God. And this leads to the third thing. He didn't believe God was gracious. He didn't understand grace, that, that everything that has happened to him as a gift from God. And one of the questions I kept thinking about this whole week is, is why did he go through with the vow? Why didn't he just go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I was foolish. I shouldn't have made it. Will you forgive me? Why didn't he do that? And I think the answer is because he didn't believe God was gracious. He didn't believe God would forgive him. He didn't, he didn't know the character of God. And he thought, nope, I've done it, I'm done for. And this is the most heartbreaking thought besides, besides this innocent young daughter being killed. This heartbreaking thought that he didn't believe that God would forgive him and show him grace with this vow. That he didn't know the heart of God. That God would not want his daughter to die. And he didn't feel like there was any way out Felt like he was too far. He stepped over the line too far. And I just say to us, listen, do you know that God's gracious? If you're here this morning and you're feeling like you've crossed, you crossed some line of no return with God, don't believe it. It's a lie. God is greater than your sin. And with Jephthah, everything flows 
from this wrong belief, this wrong view of God, and it costs him dearly. To finish the story just quickly, even with their victory over the Ammonites, the Israelites were still left a shattered people. And after the battle, you know, Jephthah comes back and they've won, and yet he comes back to a bunch of tribal infighting. Judges chapter 12, you see kind of the last part of his story that the tribe of Ephraim once again rises up and says, you should have asked us for help and we, we want the, 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 the credit. But Ephraim's pride is met, is, has met its match this time in Jephthah and, and Jephthah with his band of fighters conquers that tribe. But the story of Jephthah, it ends, it ends in civil war, it ends with Israelites killing Israelites, and what's unique about the story is that up until this point, each, each judge's kind of story arc would always end with this phrase, and there was peace in the land for a certain amount of time. But you get to Jephthah, and his last verse is Jephthah judged Israel for six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead, but there's no mention of peace. Story's over, Israelites shattered, the end. And it's another testimony to, the, to this, this age of darkness that they're in. And I just say to us, wow, what a, what a story, what an obscure story, but with such relevance for us today. And I just, I just, I wanna offer us just a few thoughts to ponder as I close. Anytime that we're in a passage about idolatry, it's a good time for us to examine our hearts. Lord, are there, are there any idols in my heart? Are there anything in, is there anything in here that's taking your place? Lord, help me change my affections. Lord, help, help, help soften my heart. Help, help me see it. Help me tear them down. Or is there anything, or is there anyone maybe where you, you're in this place and you are examining your heart and you, and you, and you maybe are thinking, you know what, this idol has been, it's been here, it's, it's deep. And maybe you're at this place in your life where, you, where I would encourage you, maybe you need to ask somebody for help. Maybe the call to you is, is to say, you know what, you can't just do it alone anymore. Like you need to maybe confess it to, to a brother or sister or bring them in to say, hey, would you journey with me in this? Bring it out into the light. And so this, this passage, it should, it ought to cause us to go, God, examine my heart. Where are the idols? Help me, to, help me to cast them down. Help me to see their foolishness. Here's the second point to ponder. Abide with Jesus. Jesus in John 15 gives us the strategy against what we see in Judges. He says, abide with me, remain in me. In, in, in those words, stay close to me. Stay connected We've seen in Judges and know that there are great consequences when we move away from God or grow distance from Him. When, we're growing, when, we, when we move away, we're not, we're not quick to remember. We're not quick to depend on. We're not quick to trust. Or you, you saturate yourself with so many other voices and idols in our lives that, that we crowd out His truth or His voice or His grace. And, but in Christ, the Word became flesh. In Christ, He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he's good and he's loving. He's full of grace. And he says, abide in me. Stay with me. Stay close to me. As we abide with Christ, we'll know our God. 
as I abide with Christ and I stay close to Him, I'll know His character. And there's no greater thing than to know God and the life that's in Jesus. And then this third thing, and then connected to abiding and intimately knowing God, I, the call is for us to worship Him. And for us, church, worship God. Worship Him with, with your lives, with all that you are, not false gods. We've seen, we've seen what happens. Worship God. And when I know His grace, I worship Him. When I know His love, I worship Him. When I know His goodness, I worship Him. And, I, and it overflows. And we become like what we worship, Right? So as I worship the true God, it changes me. It changes my affections. It changes my heart. The more we live for false gods, the less we'll know the true one. And I don't know about you, but I, I truly, desperately want to know God, the true God. Not because I'm afraid of being wrong. I want to know the true God, not because, yes, idols don't satisfy I want to know God because I've experienced the love and grace of Jesus. And it's so good. And I hope that's your desire. And may that be the desire of our hearts today. This is the word of the Lord to us.